over the last year or so we worked something out which was still a joke really three songs for me three songs for paul three songs for john and two for ringo <laughs> i'll certainly try my best to do something with them again you know i mean it's only a matter of accepting that that situation is a compromise and it, it's a sacrifice you know because we all have to sacrifice a little in order to gain something really big and there is a big game by recording together i think musically and financially and also spiritually and for the rest of the the world you know i think the beatle music is such a big sort of scene i think it's the least we could do is to sacrifice three months of a year at least you know just to do an album or two i think it's very selfish if the beatles don't record together i'm richard buskin i'm eric tarras i'm mark cunningham Sit in another chair. I can be looking like I don't care, but I do.
while you look so sweetly and divine I can feel you here See your eyes are busy kissing mine And I do So, Richard, we were having a conversation a few weeks back, and we uh, came across an interesting idea for a show. And I think it was because I was, you know, sometimes when you've come to visit, I play you uh, some things that uh, are buzzing around, some rare things maybe that uh, aren't circulating bootleg-wise, most people don't really know about. And you took particular interest in a, in a tape of a meeting that the Beatles conducted in uh, early September 1969. Do you remember? Oh, God. <laughs> How can I forget? <laughs> Mind-blowing, yeah. I mean, I heard about six minutes of that meeting, and uh, a lot of it is in the Anthony Fawcett book, One Day at a Time. I've got the edition, John Lennon, 1940-1980, so that was kind of a, a revised edition after his death. And around page 96, I think it is, you know, he gets into the meeting and he, he actually quotes from it. And that's what I got to hear. And as I said, mind-blowing because it's like all these things, right? When you read about something or someone tells you about something, it's just not the same as hearing it or seeing it or witnessing it yourself. And just hearing their voices in this meeting, which is John, Paul and George, Ringo wasn't there, which is why it was recorded. Yes. And it just brings everything to life. It's amazing. Well, when you hear it, it's, so, it's such an interesting experience. I'm sure all of our audiences picked through Anthony Fawcett's book. 
one day at a time. And and if they haven't, you really should go find it because it's it's a really interesting read. And because uh, he was John and Yoko's assistant at that time. Yes, he was John and Yoko's assistant, and he's really disappeared. Kind of. I think the last time I really saw much about Anthony Fawcett was around the time John Lennon died. Yeah. And uh, I don't think I've seen him since. Maybe a couple of pictures. But at any rate, if you read what Fawcett transcribed from the tape, it is a very different experience than hearing the tape because you hear John Lennon really uh, in a forceful, uh, not not shy and retiring John, uh, but also you get the intonation of all the voices of the people involved. And it's a fascinating thing because John does sound very strong. Some of the things that aren't in the Fawcett book, at least that we can't find it, it might be in there somewhere, is there's a really amazing part of the meeting, and I think that's really what this show is about. There's a part of the meeting where they're discussing, John is kind of guilty and says, hey, you know, Paul, you and I have carved up the empire, as he used to say, um, all the songwriting and and how, how many songs got on an album. And he felt like they'd held George back, and that moving forward, the formula should be four songs for John, four songs for Paul, four songs for George, and two for Ringo which add up to the 14, which was the traditional track amount on a British LP. Uh, so we're listening to this, and we we thought we're looking at each other, and we're like, hey, uh, I wonder what would have happened if they did go through with this little plan. Yeah. The startling part of that meeting for me is John suggesting an album. Now, take it in the context of the time. Uh, the Let It Be sessions, Get Back sessions, you know, were still in the can. And, uh, you know, not seen as a very good project at the time. They have just, you know, finished and are about to release a fabulous album, Abbey Road. Uh, This kind of puts the lie, Richard, to the idea that at the moment Abbey Road was being created, that it was absolutely, nope, this is it. This is our final uh, go around. John, you know, a few weeks before it's released, is suggesting what's our next album. Yeah, and this is, should point out as well, after the final fo- photo session at Tittenhurst Park on August the 22nd, 69. So this is the following month, and we're having this meeting, and there's no talk yet, you know, of this being the end. Um, no. And actually, Paul, to me, on the tape, sounds a little bit humble, doesn't he? Because there's a part which, and I, I can quote here, I think that until now, until this year, our songs have been better than George's. Now this year, his songs are at least as good as ours. To which George replies, now that's a myth, because most of the songs this year I wrote about last year or the year before anyway. Maybe now I just don't care whether you are going to like them or not. I just do them. If I didn't get a break, I wouldn't push it. I'd just forget about it. Now for the last two years at any rate, I've pushed it a bit more. And John says, I know what he's saying, because people have said to me, you're coming through a lot stronger now than you had. And George says, I don't particularly seek acclaim. That's not the thing. It's just to get out whatever is there to make way for whatever else is there. You know, because it's only to get them out. And I also might as well make a bit of money, seeing as I'm spending as much as the rest of you, and I don't earn as much as the rest of you. There's (laughs) one thing that was missing from that you might remember on the tape, which was... Uh, George took particular umbrage with that statement of until this year. When, when he responds and said, well, the songs I wrote, the, the songs recorded this year were written in the past, he also has a little bit of a moment where he says, well, it's uh, my songs have been enjoyed. Yes. Uh, and, and he's right. 
and and uh, you know you can sense the animosity, but it's not like it's more of a of a band member who's come into his own and is exerting his strength. Uh, yeah, which... and the other two are fully acknowledging that he's yeah. now coming on strong, and in fact, coming on stronger than they are right now. Well, that's what our little exercise, I think, in my opinion, proves. But uh, so, why don't you tell everybody what we decided, sitting there in the room listening to this thing, what we decided we'd try? We thought, how about when John suggested the album, they took him up on it and decided to go for it? Because what actually ended up happening was John then got an invitation with Yoko to go to the Toronto Peace Festival. They do that and when they return on the return flight, you know, having played with Eric and Klaus, John's all kind of ginned up and it's like, I don't need to be in the Beatles anymore. And he says this to Klein, you know, on the plane, on the return flight. And Alan Klein says to him, well, you know, don't announce anything yet because we're still negotiating, you know, a new royalty deal. And he agrees to that. Subsequently, they have another meeting, the Beatles. This time it's John, Paul and Ringo and George isn't present. So it was recorded. We haven't heard that one. You know, haven't heard that one. But that's the famous meeting where Paul's coming up with all these different ideas for the Beatles and John's getting more and more frustrated and finally can't contain himself anymore and says... I don't want to do anything. You know, I think you're daft. Why am I daft? I don't want to do this. I want a divorce. You know, I'm leaving the Beatles. And so, you know, everything then changes at that point. And a few more months pass. And then Paul tells John, you know, I'm taking you up on that idea. And then goes ahead and makes an announcement. Uh, our idea was, well, what if they'd gone ahead with this album at the tail end of 69, gone back into the studio possibly Trident, who knows where they would have gone, and gone ahead with an album. Because Neil Aspinall was sort of suggesting, well, if you don't do an album, how about a Christmas single? And from what we've heard of this meeting, no one actually vetoes that idea. But what if they did the album and what would they have had in the can in terms of compositions? Actually, quite a lot of stuff, especially George. And I think uh, we were careful uh, as well cognizant that they had pretty much a finished album, whether they liked the mix or not, in Get Back. So we're not using any of those songs. Uh, and we're, we didn't use one, uh, for example, I, Me, Mine, you know, which is, once again, it, it, it would have been on the table at that point. But we strayed away from anything that ended up on Let It Be. I think it's a rather stunning and interesting compilation. We, we took it as a game. So Richard... You know, with the pool of songs we know were around at the time, he took the pool and came up with a 14-track. I took the pool and came up with 14 tracks. Yeah, and these are all songs that were either written or at least partly written by the tail end of 69. So, you know, even if they're songs that they ended up subsequently adding to in the writing process, maybe they could have done that there and then. So... We're not going with anything that then comes out in 70 that is new in 1970 in terms of composition. So Instant Karma doesn't make it because, as we know, yeah. that was written and recorded in January, the same day. Right? Yeah. And quite a lot of the stuff on John's Plastic Ono Band album was written in 70. But there were tracks on Plastic Ono Band and even on Imagine that we know were written during the late 60s. 
So you start your album with the first track that we opened the show with here, which is Let It Down. Yeah, and I, I wanted to utilize uh, some ideas sprinkled throughout the show is, you know, if there was an opportunity to try a little hand at mixing a few ideas in so that you could hear it a different way. The specterized version uh, is beautiful of Let It Down. I wanted to use something just pre that, which is what you heard, and slightly doctored. Yeah. I thought the raw tracks of that George was working on before Spectre, you know, did his magic to it, I think they have a different sound and power to them. And, and to me, they sound more beatly. So why did you actually open the album with Let It Down? As I looked at the songs, it kind of loosely and not in a particular order, I noticed something immediately which is to me all of my the really strong 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 songs in many ways were mostly George's something started to assemble itself for me which was this is the final album I know that everybody now retro history both of us included until recently believed oh yeah they knew Abbey Road was it well now they would know that this is it I think or that everything that comes after this is sort of a a reissue series, if you will, you know, even the Get Back project. So um, I consciously picked, I, I think, let it down. I think I think the flow I went with uh, has a feeling, especially as we get towards the end, uh, of finality. So uh, I, I just find that song is very powerful, that manic burst of energy at the beginning, and then it just kind of, it's a very melancholy track. So I thought it was a, I thought it was a good opener. In my case, the running order was somewhat ruled by the material, the strength of material and who was contributing it. Because even though John suggested four songs each for him and Paul and George with two for Ringo, the George material, as we know, he was having to bottle up all this stuff because the others weren't interested, is just so strong that... Even omitting some George material, I end up with five George tracks on the album, four each for Paul and John, and just one for Ringo. I did the same thing, actually. So that meant also I didn't want to have consecutive George tracks on yeah, the album. And I also didn't want to, I don't think they would have um, agreed to George opening and closing the album. I don't think they'd have gone that far. So I thought, okay... Let's um, start in with something with full energy, you know, just jump straight in. So I started with Give Me Some Truth. Do you know the freaked out yeah. yellow belly son of Gary Cooper going to. Yeah. Do the yeah. Run on me. Yeah. Selling me dope. I've got a hope. It's just money for rope.
want is the truth We should change the Let's tell me some truth I've had enough of reading lines By some sitting down Hard-sided politicians All I want is the truth Just give me some truth No short head genesis of that song dates back to india yeah right so he wrote that or had the had a chunk of it in india and it would have been a poignant song to begin with uh, on a couple of levels if he was forced to finish it off as john would do if we listen to some of the tapes you'll you'll hear you know when he was he would kind of leave the middle eight out or whatever you know he'd just kind of get the 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 bones of the song together and it seems like he'd move on to something else. Well, what was happening in the fall of 69? We're coming up on a year since Nixon won the election. So all that tricky dicky stuff would have, would have definitely been right in his mind at that time period. Yep, absolutely. Even though he wasn't living in America, he wasn't ensconced in Greenwich Village. No, but he's he's obviously thinking that way, isn't he? Yeah. Um, you know, I think his, uh, as 
he was hearing stories from Yoko about the scene, art scene and, and her time there. And I'm sure that was a, another way of Yoko to get him out of his comfort zone in, in London and uh, into her comfort zone, into her territory. You know, uh, anybody would probably do something like that if they felt, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Beatle. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I don't have that kind of, but I do have this experience in New York, and you'd love New York, and it's a chance for you to get away from all of this. And I'm sure that I'm sure his mind was already there, uh, as you say, especially when he came back from Toronto a few, you know, a week later. Let it down didn't make the cut on my album. What is your second track? Well, my second track is "Look at Me" because there is a line in "Let It Down," you know, about "Look at Me." And and I thought, oh, okay, so there, there's an invitation. That phrase comes up. So how nice to go from Let It Down and that aggression to a true White Album outtake, in a sense, at least the way John decided to play it with that finger-picking style he got from Donovan. Yeah. Um, so I, I just liked the way those two went together. Look at me Who am I supposed to be? Who am I supposed to be? Look at me. What am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to be? Look at me. I notice you come back with a corker as number two. 
Well, yeah, we've got John starting really strong with Give Me Some Truth. And then in comes Paul with Maybe I'm Amazed. That to me is Paul's stronger song actually on the album. But it's just in terms of the pacing and what's going to come. Because there's quite a few um, Paul and John ballads on this album. But Maybe I'm Amazed has got, you know, tremendous vocal, tremendous energy. And even though we've been heaping all this praise on George, which is deserved, I have to admit that that would probably be my choice for the A-side of a single, is Maybe okay. I'm Amazed. And they were pulling singles off now. Of course, you know, they had done that with uh, with something. Yeah, because now we're going into the period, of course, where... I'm not so keen on a lot of Paul's material. I've, I've, I've heard that. So, and it kind of reflects here. You know, I'm looking at what we've got here and even looking at those first solo albums. I'm not the biggest fan of some of this material, I have to say. It's almost like he was exhausted. I really wonder because it seems only a few months before he's just tossing out hits, you know, come and get it, goodbye, you know, for other people. And we stayed away from those because of that. They they were already singles by the time this meeting's happening. Uh, but it does seem like all of a sudden he hit this weird wall. Um, yeah. And and John too. Well, it, it, as I look at all the material, what do I see? I see George is on this amazing emotional, spiritual, deep quest, and it seems like. John and Paul are like really into their girlfriends, really into their wives, and just writing these kind of love ballads. And that seems to be the dynamic, as I look at least, what I put together. Well, funny you should mention that, because, you know, the girlfriends and the wives, we don't have tracks, you know, of Yoko on this album, right? And we know that John would have liked nothing better than to have maybe a bit of Yoko on the album, something that the others understandably weren't into. But, you know, that's kind of John's way of thinking. I I, I get that. You know, he always wanted to move on and he wanted to do something different. Yeah. At that meeting, though, he didn't try to cut Yoko in. You know, four for me, four for you, four for George, that type of thing. He didn't, he didn't say one for Ringo. Yeah. And, and three for Yoko. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and one for Yoko. I don't know if you've ever seen the interview with George Harrison around the time of the Cloud Nine album, and he was interviewed by Jonathan Ross on UK TV. And there's a segment where they're yep. down the pub having a drink. Okay, it's too late now, obviously, for uh, for the band to get back together. At all, but do you regret that you didn't do it while you still had the chance? Not really. I think it was just good as it was. You know, I think it's best left as it was. Yeah. And anyway, at the time we split up, you know, there was too many other people trying to get in the group. <laughs> Could have had two groups, you know, the Beatles and the Beatles' wives. <laughs> Who would have been lead vocals? Yoko. Oh, <laughs> so, with that in mind, we asked a good friend, Mark Cunningham, and his daughter, Rosalie, accomplished musicians both, to see if they could do something on a number that, if not reproducing the sound of the Beatles would capture the spirit and take it in the direction that they saw it going post Abbey Road. So the track that they chose to do was Maybe I'm Amazed, which is one hell of a vocal. And in this case, it took a collaboration between the two of them.
Maybe I'm amazed at the way you love me all the time Or maybe I'm afraid of the way I love you Maybe I'm amazed at the way you pull me out of time You hold me all night Maybe I'm amazed at the way I really need you
Mark. Wow. Well, that was different. <laughs> the female dynamic. I mean, you don't really think Yoko or Linda would have taken the lead vocal to you on that song. I don't know. I mean, you, you, you couldn't kind of imagine John having a conversation with Paul and saying, you know, how about Yoko singing on this bit? But um, I don't think it would have been uh, received particularly well. Um, but, you know, maybe Paul would have countered by saying, well, only if Linda can take photographs while she's doing it. I, I don't know. No idea. I just can't imagine that in my wildest dreams. No, I, I think John was ready for something different, you know. I think that was part of him. the reason of him leaving the Beatles was that, as with a lot of things, he got tired of something and then he wanted to move on. And so while we can understand the others not particularly wanting Yoko in the group, you can see it from his perspective, he just wanted to do something different. I think that having Yoko involved on a creative level could have worked in some way, not necessarily as her playing an active part as a, a singer or a, a musician. I mean, she could have played piano, perhaps, but um, I think more from the conceptual standpoint, she might have been able to, you know, point the band in some creative direction and, and they'd have gone with a brief of some kind. That, that may be how it might have panned out. So what happened in your case? You obviously did get the female involved. Well, yeah. Well, you very kindly invited me to do a track for the programme. And um, uh, you know, I, I, I could have done it on my own, but I wanted to float the idea to my daughter, Rosalie, who um, is a very gifted professional musician and a huge Beatles fan, um, and uh, you know, I thought she would have she would enjoy it. So I I asked her. I think the way I would have done it wouldn't have been too dissimilar, but I think the result of the two of us working together is much better. Um, well, handling that vocal range for one thing that that's a hell of a vocal that McCartney does on there. Um, yeah, <laughs> quite a challenge. Well, when when we were sitting down and putting the track together, you know, it started off with uh, Rosalie playing piano and then I played drums to it. And we, we, you know, we built the track up from there. And when it came to doing the vocals, I, I had every intention of, you know, doing the McCartney verse, the opening verse and then the second verse. But I had this throat problem that was affecting my voice and and every time I went for the high notes uh it, you know I, I started sounding um let's say senior um not making any parallels there of course um and um I it was difficult I just couldn't do it basically so we were having a thing you know Rosalie was going to do it herself but I you know I, I, I wanted to be present vocally and then she came up with the mad idea of, well, why don't you do a John? Um, so even then I had to pitch it down um, because it's, it, would have, it would have required a softer tone for the opening verse, and I, I just couldn't have done it at the time. So I did the lower octave, and it's, it just sounds a bit like Stoned John. <laughs> or was that? Is that 
Rosalie doing the McCartney harmony under your vocal near the start? No, that, that's actually me. But the last line before the chorus comes in, that's that's her. And, and then you're harmonising with her, with the low vocal? No, that's her. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's uh, So I got that wrong. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, I suppose it's being a bit versatile. And, you know, she could certainly pull it off being versatile. There's no question about that. So what were you aiming for here? To channel the spirit of how the Beatles may have been had they stayed together a few months longer to record a follow-up to Abbey Road, knowing that that was going to be their last album. And when you say the spirit, explain, in terms of what we're hearing on this track. What they were into musically. So, in no particular order, I think Paul, with George Martin present might have been experimenting with the idea of um, introducing um, a horn arrangement in the song so that it went off and, you know, diverted at some point with the arrangement. Um, that's certainly evident on Ram, that he's, his head was kind of in the space of, of horn territory. Um, no intended pun there, by the way. <laughs> um, um, and... Um, George, if we're pitching this, uh, the Beatles recording this album in December 69, then George would have been in the company of Delaney Bramlett, Delaney and Bonnie were going out for a UK tour. George guested on the tour. He was exposed to Delaney's slide guitar style. And that was the beginning of what we later heard on My Sweet Lord. And... This could, these sessions with the Beatles could have been the first time that George's guitar style adopted the slide approach. So that's, you know, talking to Rosalie about how we were going to construct the song, it was going to be, well, George is going to introduce slide, introduce slide on this. Um, it's a great platform. And although, you know, it was hardly my sweet lord what, you know, I I did on that. It, it's just a nod in the direction of his slide style that evolved. Do you think Paul's lead guitar on Maybe I'm Amazed was him trying to emulate George? I think no more than what Paul had done lead guitar-wise on earlier Beatle tracks. No, no not really. Um, he was a great guitarist, Paul. You know, he's always been a great guitarist. Yeah, he's got a lot of edge to his playing, yeah, hasn't it's, he? Yeah, it's, it's like a bit punk, George, in a way, because there have been so many instances where he knows he's made a bum note and it doesn't seem to matter. It's all about the performance. It's all about the, the atmosphere that he's conjuring. His original solo recording of Maybe I'm Amazed was... You know, you could have got a better guitar sound. You could have got a better guitar performance, but that's what it was. And he was very much like that. Um, and I think what Rosalie played was, I suppose, what you would call an accurate version of Paul's solo. Yeah, because who played what on this track? Who played what? Well, obviously, we shared the vocals. We both did backing vocals. Um, Rosalie, yeah, well, the track started out with Rosalie playing piano 
to a click track. Um, she played lead, gu lead guitar, the solo, and there's Leslie guitar on there. Um, she played organ, keyboards, percussion, hand claps, and she engineered it. We kind of co-produced it. And um, I sang lead on the verses, um, did backing vocals as well, played drums, played bass, slide guitar, organ. Um, I did the horn arrangement and did some hand claps. And also Rosalie's partner, Roscoe, Roscoe Levy, um, a renowned blues guitarist in the UK. He's uh, playing hand claps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I could tell those hand claps were a bit bluesy. They were a bit bluesy, yeah. Uh, it was it, it was a little bit, you know, woke up this morning. How do you think this reflects how the Beatles would have evolved? You know, because there was always a change from album to album, wasn't there? There was always a different sound. I was very tempted to have um, an approximation of um, a Moog synthesizer on it because that's where they were on Abbey Road. Um, but it was probably with good reason that that didn't end up on the track because, you know, it was like, what's the next thing? And perhaps the horns were the big thing, even though they'd used horns on the White Album, um, on Revolver, got to get you into my life. I think that might have been another another move forward that they would have included a lot more brass um, as well as George Martin's signature orchestration or with strings and things like that. Um, I think that they would have been adopting 16-track recording as the new standard and uh, been early ambassadors for that. And I think that the quality of the stereo production would have improved. Um, I think on this album, that would have been a move forward, um, allowing them greater freedom to expand tracks. I think that they'd been through the psychedelic thing, They'd been through the let's get back to basics. And then I think the next move would have been, OK, let's make this a quality production that isn't going to be full of audio gimmicks, but a lot more musical. Yeah, that's logical. It makes sense. It just w it would have been different together than what it was with them recording apart. Yeah, and you had a different influences as well. You know, as soon, as soon as Phil Spector came on board, you know, that was a, a, another direction to go in. Um, McCartney, very much homespun recording style until he got to do Ram. Uh, of course, I'm taking it by the arrangement that you've got on your recording that you are assuming George Martin would have taken the production helm again. I, I think so. Um, I would have hoped so because yeah. what he would have brought to that would have been something not only familiar, but progressive as well. Well, I want to thank those guys for doing that, because that was very, very interesting, and, and in a sense reminds me of that period where the Beatles were recording album tracks and, you know, suddenly it becomes a hit for somebody else, you know, whether that's the Hot Chocolate Band doing uh, Give Peace a Chance or whatever. Um, kind of had that feeling to it. Yeah. So here we are, third track for me. We've, we've started off with Let It Down, went to look at me. 
Another song that was previewed during the Get Back Sessions, a Paul McCartney number named Another Day. Every day she takes a morning bath, she wets her hair Wraps a doll around her as she's heading for the bedroom chair It's just another day Slipping into stockings, stepping into shoes Dipping in the pocket of her The office where the papers grow, she takes a break, drinks another coffee, and she finds it hard to stay awake. It's just another day. It's just another day. I've got that on my list as well, just a little bit later, but it does make the cut. Uh, I was never crazy on the song, but I think it's a nice song. 
you know, it, it was uh, certainly one of Paul's better solo era songs. One of the things I find most compelling about it is when he, he had recorded that, obviously during the uh, Ram sessions, but I love the guitar lead because it, to me, it's just like a bad impression of George's slide technique. It's like, what was the... Su so you can almost hear a Beatle version of that. It's not a very big stray, you know, because of how he chose to, to play the guitar in that. That's right. You see, John could get George's playing on his records, but that wasn't going to happen with Paul. So he had to do it himself. <laughs> well, I, 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 would you have seen that as an olive branch, perhaps? Or was that in your face? I don't know if it's either. I definitely don't think it's an olive branch. And I'm not so sure it's in his face either. I don't know. I think, you know, his gripes were more with John. Don't recall Paul taking shots at George particularly, certainly not in the songs. So uh, I gave you my number three. What was your third one? So my number three. So, OK, so I started with Give Me Some Truth. Then, you know, maybe I'm amazed. And then it's George's first number, Art of Dying which, as we know, he started writing around the time of Revolver and is one of those tracks that, you know, Lennon McCartney weren't overly keen on. Which is a great pity. I, I love it. And I would love... I know somewhere there's documentation of the lyrical change. Instead of there's nothing Sister Mary can do to keep me here with you, there's nothing Mr. Epstein can do to keep George here with you. Yeah, which is really interesting, isn't it? Is that George in 1966 saying already that he's thinking of getting out of the Beatles, just as John would subsequently say he was doing around that time? Well, there's that famous quote when he got on the plane heading out of uh, San Francisco to go back to England. There, though, I'm not a Beatle anymore. I'm not a Beatle anymore. Yeah, not a Beatle. Again, what a dynamic track, okay, Art of Dying. I mean, it's not just the philosophy of the lyrics, but what we get to hear is 1970 with Spectre producing, and it's heavy. So we don't know what the arrangement would have been at the tail end of 69 without Spectre because they hadn't got involved with Spectre yet. That was to come on the Let It Be project, but one would assume it wasn't going to be an acoustic ballad. So if we just go with what we know, that would have been one hell of a track for George to come in with, right? As number three on the album. Uh, this one's Art of Dying. Do, 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 do. 
So now I'm up to my number four track, and I know you're going to love this selection because I had to think a lot about... There's so much cool Ringo stuff that's buzzing around, but not quite done, you know. Would he have done, when every song is sung, the George song that, you know, is kind of passed around, uh, that Ringo eventually did in 1976 as I'll Still Love You. Would he do that one? Uh, I'm the Greatest was kicking around. Uh, Would... Obviously, Ringo got to do that in 1973. Would maybe John have finished that one off? I don't know if John would have given it to him at that point. Well, I went with the same premise. I thought instead, well, what did what was Ringo already planning and executing in the fall of '69? He was doing uh, tracks for what eventually became Sentimental Journey. Uh oh. So I think I would have chosen. Well, it was a jump ball between Stardust, which was produced by Paul McCartney. Or stormy weather. So I'm going with stormy weather as Are my Are you serious? Four. Absolutely, yes. I mean, <laughs> no, this, no, no, I'll, no, no, come on. Seriously. Yes. Oh, look, I, I, it's horrible. Oh, uh, horrible's rough. Come on. Horrible. <laughs> I mean, it's Ringo. It's, I mean, it's, it's schmaltzy. It's Ringo. What does that mean? I mean, the vocal well, is so wobbly. And <laughs> what an interpretation okay, see, of that song. No, no. Remember, I, I just I want you to relax that for a second. Think about this. What was the premise? This is the Beatles' breakup album. What were they going through every day? Stormy weather. I mean, it. It's almost like the joke. You know, the the comedy relief from all of this heaviness. So, I thought a lot about us thinking. You know, that's the Ringo song. There's no sun up in the sky, stormy weather Since my girl and I ain't together Keeps raining all the time Life is bare, gloom and misery everywhere 
stormy weather Just can't get my poor self together I'm weary all the time The time So weary all the time When she went away The blues walked in and met me If she stays away Old rocking chair will get me All I do is pray The Lord above will let me Walk in the sun once more Can't go on Everything I had is gone Stormy weather Since my girl and I ain't together Keep raining all the time Blues walked in and let me If she stays away Old rocking chair will get me All I do is pray The Lord above will let me Walk in the sun once more Can't go on Everything I had it done Stormy weather Since my girl and I ain't together Keep raining all the time The time Keep raining all the Can you honestly imagine John and Paul collaborating on that? Uh, well, uh, probably. <laughs> I think they would. Well, yes, I can imagine Paul producing it because he did Stardust. So, yeah, I, I just think the other guys would probably roll their eyes or maybe John would see the humor in it. I don't know. That's a great question. I, I don't think I've got a good answer. But that's where I'd put number four track is the, the one Ringo That song. might have ended the sessions right there. <laughs> Maybe that should have ended side one. I should have put that down the list of it. It's ended my faith in you, that's for sure. If I had ended side one with it, there might not have been a side two. Oh, my God. I can't believe that. All right. Actually. So, you, so you, didn't, you didn't like that one. So what did you do for number four then? For number four, Child of Nature. On the road to Rishikesh I was dreaming more or less And the dream I had was true Yes, the dream I had was true I'm just a child of nature I don't need much to set me free I'm just a child of nature I'm one of nature's children Sunlight shining in my eyes 
John's best lyrics, I much prefer Jealous Guy, but it's what we had at the end of 69, and I'd still go with that because it's a, it's a beautiful melody. Yeah, the melody is stunning. And, of course, we've only heard Child of Nature in kind of demo form, so what would have happened in terms of the production, you know, that, that would have been a whole different story. And if it had been anywhere close to the arrangement that we end up hearing on the Imagine LP, it, that's just a, a beautiful song. You know, A Child of Nature is one of those things, when I think about it, was it the positive Maharishi song? Was that early in the in the visit and he's he, he hasn't gone cynical about the Maharishi? Or was it not about the Maharishi at all? It was just about the his disciples, his followers, and, and mm. John getting in touch with with that quietness and that, that freedom that North India afforded him at, the, at that crazy Beatlemania uh, point. So... I yeah it's a it, you're right about the the tune is just gorgeous. When I was revisiting the list of potential songs, it reminded me how John so interestingly is a guy that would just throw away a set of lyrics, but keep the tune, and that he did that you know a few times. Right, and the lyrics as I said they're not his strongest lyrics. They're not as appalling as some people say they are either. They're not terrible lyrics, but they're. You know, slightly weak, I would say. Well, he, he seemed to want to approach that subject. I mean, we'll look at the first set of lyrics for In My Life. They were pretty bad, too. Yeah. I mean, you think about it. So it, maybe that's the way he worked it out. He did try another song called India, too. You've heard that demo, I'm sure, course, a million yeah. times. Yeah. It, it always reminded me of it. Like, somehow he wanted to say something positive about this, but it, it just never came out strong enough, I guess. But... Uh, but definitely a great song. What's your number five track? My number five was your number one. Give, Give me, me some, some truth. truth. Ah. Why the decision to place it there? Is it a lyrical decision again? I think after you've done Stormy Weather, you got to come back and smack people in the face to wake them back up again. So. <laughs> if they're still around, yes. <laughs> oh, come on. Everybody loved Ringo. I'd re- You know what I really would have done if I was in, in this project? If it, I would have... 
actually found out once and for all, was there really a Ringo song called I Should Like to Live Up a Tree? If, if there was, maybe that would have been my number four. But no, number five for me is Give Me Some Truth, a great, rocking, you know, no-nonsense John Lennon not taking any crap from anybody. Um, and uh, like I say, the, the strongest thing I could come up with to follow up on uh, Stormy Weather. So how about you? Well, my number five track. So I've had Give Me Some Truth, Maybe I'm Amazed, Art of Dying, Child of Nature. And now, because I said I've got, you know, five George tracks to get in here. Number five is All Things Must Pass, which, uh, uh, you know, uh, it follows on from Child of Nature. I think it kind of continues musically that sort of wistful theme and some of George's finest lyrics. Sunrise doesn't last all morning A cloudburst doesn't last all day Seems my love is up and has left you with no warning It's not always been this great All things must pass All things must pass away Sunset doesn't last only up and must be leaving It's not always gonna be this great All things must pass All things must pass Darkness only stays at night time In the morning it will fade away Daylight is good at arriving at the right time It's not Sing. 
it really is a, a, a very deep, deep record. When you examine all of the lyrics, George is so packing the heaviest punch, um, you know, especially the contrast between uh, the lyrical content of Child of Nature, you know, to uh, All yeah. Things Must Pass. Yeah, and that occurred to me, right? All of a sudden, we've got a John song followed by a George song, and it's George who sounds like the experienced lyricist. Yeah, you might have might have been one of those moments where maybe uh, George helped John out a little bit on something. That's so right. Maybe he can do this. <laughs> of course, we're assuming that John plays on George's tracks on this album as well. Uh, well, as John pointed out in that meeting, uh, he didn't play on some of the songs because he didn't feel necessarily welcome to play on them. I mean, you know, you always had you had Eric Clapton or somebody, or or before. Yeah, he sounds quite hurt when he says, you know, well, you had Eric or whoever playing. Yeah, and and also, and he said, and before that, you know, it was the Indian records, and you know, the Indian music we weren't needed. I think was his exact wording. Mm. You know, we weren't needed, meaning the rest of them. Almost, almost as like, okay, you're off boogieing on your own here with this stuff, and you know, what are we really supposed to do? It is that John just trying to wriggle off the hook, or was John really sticking it to George over the course of a fairly extended period of pointedly not being on his songs? I don't think he was sticking it to it. I think he was hurt because look what he does as soon as he starts going solo. He, you know, that he's all over the Imagine album, you know, and, and, and treated with respect. Yeah, but John isn't all over All Things Must Pass. I think in that place and on that record, it, it, it was better that he wasn't. I don't think John was in the best... What would John have really contributed to that record? You know, that I mean, Ringo can, of course... But George, but but John couldn't, and I don't think there was a lack of affection there because it's during those sessions he made the special Johnny's birthday. It's you know celebration. Yeah, but musically it's going in one direction at this point. It's George playing on John's Beatle tracks, not the other way around. It's George playing on John's initial solo albums, not the other way around, and it's George, you know having a little nod to John on one of his albums with It's Johnny's Birthday. I wonder if some of that comes down to a bit of musical snobbery. Uh, John being, a, by his own admission, a, a pretty primitive you know, player who can express himself, mm. but you know, not necessarily known as a, as a great player of any instrument. He was a great writer and a great feel. I think at this point, look who George has handpicked to be on those sessions. It's, it's sort of the creme de la creme. So he's He's getting these, you know, hired yeah. guns to make sure he comes out of that gate roaring, and and he delivered the goods. I mean, he probably should have spread that stuff over two albums, and he would have had two huge hits. Maybe Yoko, with her psychic powers, told John, George is never going to use you if you guys split up. So why should you help him even now? Well, uh, I wonder. Um, what's your next track? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to go somewhere else. I don't think I'm touching that one. I think my next track, number six, uh, just to recap, Let It Down, Look At Me, Another Day, Stormy Weather, Give Me Some Truth. Well, if you're asking for some truth, who are you asking? Maybe you're asking the Lord. So Hear Me, Lord, would be my next song.
Beautiful song. I love that. I like that much better than your stormy weather choice, I have you to say. You know, uh, Richard, I'm, I, I'd like to announce that stormy weather only makes one appearance on this album. It, it was there for the concept of the stormy weather. But yeah, hear me, Lord, and you've got that following, Give Me Some Truth. That's kind of interesting. That's a real change of pace and change of subject. I, I saw them. I just, I liked the, you know, the, the definitive statement, Give Me Some Truth, Lord, you know, almost like the way the next kind of songs hang together, they made sense to me in some strange way. They spoke to me this way. I feel like they almost assembled themselves for me. Uh, give me some truth, hear me, Lord. It, it, it's their pleas. You know, they're both sort of a plea to some higher power, uh, even if that higher power is, is your your inner higher power. But it's they, they're connected to me on that level, that they are a plea for something. Mm. My sixth track is the one that was your number three, is Another Day. Like you say, I love this song. I... I really am a little uh, dismayed that it doesn't seem to get quite the love and respect uh, of some of other of McCartney's work. You know, maybe they felt it was twee or something. I, I know that you, I really kind of love the early McCartney solo stuff. I know that's not your favorite. What about this song uh, bothered you in a sense? You know, that you kind of saw it as a, as, as a downward progression as opposed to an upward one. I actually remember when it was released as a single. It was nice. It was pleasant. Uh-oh. But I think even then, I recognised it as a bit lightweight sounding compared to what I'd been used to with the Beatles. My criticism would be it's hooks in search of a meaty song. There's some nice hooks in there. There's mm. some beautiful yeah. touches. But I, I think if I had an issue with it, it's that last chord. It seemed a little too cute, <laughs> you know? Like, like oh, we used to do you yeah. know minor sixes when we ended Beatles songs. Let's you know, I don't know. There's something about it that I I've got you there. I love the song, but when I look back at it now, that's that's my only thing I can criticize. It's almost too slick, very slick. And also the backing vocals, kind of foreshadowing some of those wings backing vocals with Linda, which. <laughs> Began Careful. to you know be problematic <laughs> for me. I'm being as diplomatic as I can be. So anyway, that was your number six. So I guess I'm up to my number seven, which was your uh, number two, which is Maybe I'm Amazed. And as I say, would have been my choice for the single. And what would you have chosen for the B-side, Stormy Weather? Did you say the Z-side or the B-side? <laughs> all right, all right. I'm just, I'm just funning you. So that was my number seven, and, and you're up with your number seven. Isn't it a pity? What, you mean, you mean about Stormy Weather? <laughs> about stormy weather as well yeah uh, isn't it a pity what a fantastic track so much great george material i'm going to say up front now that the one that didn't make the cut was wawa which absolutely was on my list here but it would have been six george songs you know and so that's gonna to have to be maybe the bonus track you know that they put out for the 2010 re-release it's funny because i i left wawa off too at the last second i actually had wawa at one point, as the number one opener, it was hard to not use it. I mean, I, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you, you know, th- that I wasn't alone in that uh, in that judgment. But uh, it, to me, the idea that the Wawa was synonymous with a headache, and that he'd just kind of had enough of Paul, and he walked out of the sessions, I really thought like, ooh, what a what a great opener. I'm I'm still iffy. Maybe I should change my opener. I don't know, but I. I uh, I think that uh, it's a fantastic song that we didn't use. You're right. You could have. You know, it's so obvious who was the strongest writer right at this point. Yeah. But anyway, I just thought if they're doing this album, they'd already vetoed Not Guilty, 
okay, which is another one that could have been on here, by the way. But I, I've never been crazy about that track. I certainly didn't like George's vocal efforts. We've already discussed that on a previous show. Um, so that didn't make the cut either. But with Isn't It a Pity, uh, it's just beautiful. Uh, you know, that song kind of builds and got some sublime musicianship on that track all the way around. Oh, yeah. And uh, it, it's just... Uh, it's wistful, and I think it fits in beautifully on a final Beatles album. One, two, three, four.
I think, Richard, you went to the Royal Albert Hall in 92 to see George. Is that correct? Yeah, the National Law Party yes. concert. That's right, where he was uh, backed by Clapton's band with Gary Moore filling in for Eric. Yeah, so so I saw it in Tokyo, um, you know, in December of 91. And that was the second to last track. And it was powerful. I just remember thinking how do you come back from anything? You're doing this, it's like you're emotionally spent listening to it. It was such a beautiful, beautiful song and a killer closer. Uh, I don't know Did I don't know where he placed it in the set list where you, where you saw him. It was what he did finally come back with from <laughs> Tokyo was Roll Over Beethoven. <laughs> it's just, okay, back to the beginning. Yeah, uh, well. but But it is a, it's a great yeah. track and it, it's on my list just later, later down. Yeah, and it was one that I did consider as the closer, but as you'll see, I've got a, a pretty good alternative for that. Well, my number eight track, I'm going back to uh, sentimental soft John Lennon here with Oh My Love, which uh, once again, back to 68 track that uh, he had kicking around for a while. He revisited it, obviously, a couple of years later. But it kind of fits in here to me. Snap. I've got exactly the same track at number eight. That's so interesting. Great Minds. I guess it is Great Minds. Well, I I put it behind, you know, maybe I'm amazed to me the big, you know, vulnerability love song from Paul and then Oh My Love to me, a vulnerable love song from John. So I kind of put the, the you know, the twins there. <laughs> Oh, my. 
It's amazing, actually, that that never made the cut on a Beatles album. I always loved Love on the Plastic Ono Band and then on Imagine, Oh My Love. It's just amazing that that was sitting around for three years, didn't even make it onto his first solo album. Yeah, because I can really imagine what some beautiful Beatles uh, harmonizing on that would have done, um, would have lifted it even oh, higher. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's... I I wonder... I, 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 in an earlier time without Yoko, who, of course, inspired the song, so maybe the song wouldn't have been written, maybe Paul would have seen that at a different stage of its development and said, oh, John, we got to, you know, this is great. We got to use this. But it seems like they kind of were off on their own when it came to that sort of thing. They were coming with fully formed things that maybe needed a word or two or a little suggestion here. But yeah, uh, and maybe John lacked confidence in some of his softer material uh, at that time. Uh, he should have. As recorded on Imagine, of course, it does have George playing the lead guitar. So we've got two Beatles on that track. But as you say, and as is the case with all the songs here that were subsequently put out on one of their solo efforts, what would it have sounded like given the Beatles treatment? As you say, especially with regard to the harmony vocals. And whether it's Ringo's drumming or George's guitar work or Paul's bass, whatever. But those harmonies are the thing that, you know, I think I consider most that would change the whole nature of the recording if the, if it was done by the Beatles. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I agree with that completely. So um, so we were both at the same number eight. So I'll, I'll take number nine, number nine, number nine. And um, that's where I put Art of Dying. Um once again, a pre-Spectre, you know, not not uh, the version that we're accustomed to. A little more beatly. Right. Well, this is where I thought it's, you know, time for Ringo's track, because as I said, I've only got one Ringo track on here. And as tempted as I was <laughs> with your choice... To put Stormy Weather in? Did you put Stormy Weather in? <laughs> as tempted as I was to do that, not, I, I actually put in there... I'll Still Love You, which, as you said, in its earlier incarnation was when every song is sung. That's where I would have put well, it. Well, that's actually nicely uh, placed, I think, because it comes after, as in both of our cases, it comes after Oh My Love, right? In your case, it comes in after. I, you know, yep. But, I mean, George wrote that, and Ringo did eventually record it on Rotogravor. It's such a beautiful song. The demo, as George sings it, is beautiful. But I think Ringo could handle, you know, with a little, once again, with the Beatle harmonies to help him over the rough spots, it would have been a majestic Ringo song.
So what is your number 10 track? What you had much earlier up the list at number four, which would be Child of Nature, because it is such a beautiful melody. Uh, I I really wonder yeah. uh, what he would have done for the unfinished bits of lyrics at that point, but I almost don't care because it does have such a, a beautiful tune and it would... I can, um, again, imagine these layered harmonies, maybe, you know, some sort of counterpoint thing that would have really lifted it. And, you know, I can, can't say enough about how gorgeous the tune is. So so I guess it would definitely be Child of Nature. For him to have recorded that song with the Beatles in late 69, one has to guess that it wouldn't have had the Child of Nature lyrics. You know, they were already passé but we don't know that he would have been there yet for Jealous Guy. So who knows what... Yeah, and it could have been anything. Would they have been an adaptation of Child of Nature, maybe? Who knows? Yeah, he was still thinking about it as Child of Nature, uh, uh, obviously as late as 71. You know, there's a jam session of, like, how Child Mm. of Nature, and and I think the last track is Oyoko. You know, and so even even right. by then, he's he was still clinging to the original set. So he obviously had a fight with Yoko sometime in 1971 during the Imagine sessions, and just bang, whole new set of much nicer lyrics that fit. So um, yeah. so anyway, so that was my number ten. Your number ten. Tell me about it. Every night for me at this point, as I said before, it's kind of slim pickings with Paul and uh, uh, you know Teddy Boy and Junk just don't do it for me, even though. You know, he tried them out with the Beatles and we've got those versions from the Get Back sessions. I prefer Every Night as a composition and even the way he ended up recording it. So, again, if we had the three-part harmonies on that, it could have been something pretty special. Every night I just want to go out, get out of my head Every day I don't want to get up, get out of my bed Every night I want to play out And every day I want to do But tonight I just want to stay in
this is actually one of the tracks that used to get played over here on the radio in the early 70s as a sort of deep track or whatever they whatever that terminology is for album oriented rock as that format was known in those days so you one did hear that a lot it it was a very pleasant song it had some nice moments to it i'm with you though it, it's kind of lyrically lightweight and i wonder if had he proposed it maybe john would have come in and said all right these are under the arm and let's let's do a little bit of tweaking on the words mm. and maybe added a little spice to it i mean i i think there's a few of these that i can't imagine paul getting away with intact as a Beatle composition. You had mentioned junk before, which, once again, pretty yeah. melody, lovely, but just what what's going on with those words, you know? It's... And extended himself to doing a second version, sing-along junk. It's so nice, he used it twice. <laughs> but he, I, no, it was, I think he was starting to do a, a stack of tracks idea or something. Like, just like, we'll do one side of the album with yeah. me singing them, and the second side, you can all sing them. If you're still around. After stormy weather, all bets were off. So my number 11 is All Things Must Pass, which we spoke about, which as we're nearing the end, as far as I'm concerned, you know, the, the messages get a little deeper and heavier. Uh, all things, including the Beatles, must okay. pass. So. Yeah, I, I do hear that you've got this theme going that this is, as you said, they know it's their swan song. They're recording it as a swan song. And... So you've got that kind of thematically running through this album, haven't you? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I didn't pay much attention to that because I didn't actually go with the assumption that this was their swan song. It was certainly going to be one more album, but not that they would be also agreeing that we're never going to work together again. Like I say, that, that's what makes it interesting that you have such a different list, which is really more based off musical flow maybe than mine is. Mine's like a, this you know, concept piece. Right. Um, and since I like all the tracks, I'd find a way to make them work. You know, they'd definitely be in the hand of a better producer in, in uh, George Martin, uh, less bombastic than Spectre. And, um, you know, he, I think he would have allowed the personality of the songs to come through a lot more than, say, Phil could or Richard Perry, the guy that was producing Ringo Records, you know, mm. and stuff like that. So it would have, you know, there would have been the George Martin touch on this stuff, too, which is an interesting aspect we're both assuming it would have been George Martin producing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it would have... I think that they'd obviously had a pleasant enough experience and George, you know, didn't irritate them uh, during Abbey Road, which had, you know, just finished off. So I would imagine, yeah, why not come back with them? So, mm. so what did you have at number 11? Well, it's one of my favourite George post-Beatles tracks. It's one that he started out writing for Patty but didn't commit it to an album until he'd completed it for Olivia. Well, that tells us something, doesn't it? <laughs> the thing about it is that critics have often zoned in on it as a very beatlish sounding song, and that's Beautiful Girl. Never seen such a beautiful girl Got me shaking inside Calling on me from deep within her eyes Not the kind you go handing around Wanna keep her right there This loving may come as no surprise 
good reason for that being a beatle sounding song because he wrote it when he was still with the Beatles. Exactly, except that he'd written the melody when he was still with the Beatles and he'd written the first verse. That I think that's about as far as he got. Um, and then he finished it off for the 33 and a third album. But that was a track that the first time I heard it back in 76, I just fell in love with it. I've always loved that song. George had an interesting habit of revisiting his old songs. It pretty much, it, it sort of ended, I think, as he got up to uh, Cloud Nine and, and the Wilburys and stuff. But it seemed every album would have some little treat of a song that you had heard about uh, or heard the title of. And, uh, you know, he'd finish it off and, and kind of offer it up to the, uh, to the fans. And that was definitely surprising to me years later i i didn't know that it had its roots back in the very late beetle period until some of the great pirated you know tapes started coming out and i was like oh wait a minute uh, what's this one doing here you know some of them are more obvious than others you know he did you and had written it for uh, uh for ronnie specter and uh you know that came out on on extra texture i in it but once again the it, it was like he had such a burst of energy right as he left the Beatles, that it was just kind of finishing off a track that had been tracked during uh, All Things Must Pass. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, interesting choice. Well, we're up to number 12. I've always loved the backseat of my car. I bet you have. 
<laughs> I was waiting. I was waiting. I just thought I would toss a, a big old meatball there. All you needed was the sauce and the spaghetti. What I want to know is, so. did anyone else enjoy the backseat of your car? Oh, uh, well, that for... <laughs> right in, folks. So, backseat of my car. Loved it when it came out on Ram. Thought it was very beatly. the big, you know... I always called Ram Sergeant Paul. Uh, it, it was really, to me, like his Sergeant Pepper, you know? Yeah, I've never been subscribing to that one. You know, people sort of said also it was like Abbey Road Part 2. I can hear what he's trying to achieve production-wise, and there are some nice tracks on there, but to me it just doesn't measure up to some of the epithets that it's been accorded. Well, he's missing three key figures from the stuff it was being compared to or said to be uh, Part 2 of. But I think as as a song that, once again began in in Beatle times oh would I love to have heard the Beatles do that with a big old George Martin orchestra you know that that would have been something special and and to me it always struck me as a slightly you know 50s-esque it doesn't sound like the 50s but just it, it seemed like Paul's kind of yearning for the American experience or something from the 50s you know all that music that he loved so much just that title which today no one would think much of, but I seem to remember at the time, it, it kind of, people thought it was an invitation to promiscuity or, or, or kind of racy. Mm. I mean, I know this probably sounds crazy to people, but I remember some of the teenage girls that were older than me in the neighborhood. Uh, that was, I, I think the parents weren't terribly thrilled with a song by their, their teenage girls were listening to uh, called Backseat of My Car. <laughs> Speed along the highway Honey, I want it my way But listen to her daddy's song Don't stay out too long Ooh, we're just busy hiding Sitting in the backseat of my Looking car Looking for a ride and
Mexico City Sitting in the backseat of my It's the last nostalgia song of my uh, closing Beatles album. The, the next two have another point to make. How about you? What were you doing by number 12? By number 12, I was inserting your number two track, Look At Me. And it's interesting because, of course, it's it's the Plastic Ono Band album that we associate that with. But when you listen to it, it absolutely could have fit in on the White Album, okay? It's it's totally written in that vein, in, you know, from that era. One of the demo tapes of it, he kind of busks his way through it. Uh, and it's so much more effective in that White Album style, the finger-picking style. So he definitely made the right choice on that. But yeah, that's one of those songs that even when I heard it as a little kid, it I knew it sounded like something that should have been on a Beatle album. And considering how rough some of the rest of the record was, <laughs> that was kind of like a, an oasis you know, it wasn't quite as hard-edged as some of the other material on that album that it came out on. So, yeah, nice. Uh, any reason why you stuck it where you did? Uh, just pacing, basically. I mean, you know, if we look at the John tracks that I've got on here, it's Give Me Some Truth, which obviously is hard-edged. But then you've got Child of Nature, which is a ballad. You've got Oh My Love, which is a ballad. And you've got Look At Me, which is a ballad, OK? One would assume that if they were really doing an album he would have come up with something new. Maybe Instant Karma would have, you know, jumped forward. But uh, I can't imagine he would have just done one hard-edged track and three ballads. But that's what I was working with. I wonder, it's what, what we had lying around, and wasn't that one of the criticisms that McCartney 
alluded to that, you know, John didn't have as much material, so I filled in the blank type right. of thing, almost like as an excuse. Yeah. So so I notice, by the way, that your number 13 was my number 12. The backseat on my car was one of the slightly stronger tracks, if you like. Again, I, I'm not a fan of this. What I do wonder, had the Beatles stayed together would Paul have raised his game? There's a very good chance he would have done. You know, a widespread supposition has been that without the challenge of the Beatles of, you know, having John Lennon there and George Harrison, his standards kind of dropped. Um, we'll never know the answer to that. But this to me was kind of what was left of the remaining tracks. As I said, I, I'm really not a fan of Teddy Boy. I think John made that yeah. clear himself you know, during the get back Jump sessions up. by turning it into a dosy do. I like the finished version of Teddy Boy or, or whatever, but I agree with you. It's it's pretty lightweight stuff. Off Ram, hands across the water and stuff. Again, it's just too tra la 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 for me. <laughs> but, but backseat of my car it is a, a, a nice production. It, it's a nice composition. I don't think it's one of his stronger songs, but it, it's okay. I think it would have got stronger. I I can hear John Lennon sing instead of where Paul falsettos, you know, don't stay out too long. I can hear John's nasal voice being the sinister, don't stay out too long. You know, yeah. I can hear him singing certain counterpoint bits that would have lifted it. And I think once again, he th there would have been some touch that beetled it up, harmonies, mm. George's guitar work, you know, Ringo's drumming. I mean, I it, a lot of times we forget that 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 characteristic sound and style added so much atmosphere to everything they yeah. did uh, with that he played on. You can always tell when it's Ringo and when it isn't. So it's, I think those extra ingredients would have lifted the song. And, and as I say, instead of the kind of falsetto vocal, I can hear John doing those bits or, or coming up with something, some half-finished song to fuse into the middle or something like that. What's your number 13? Isn't it a pity? This is this is uh, the last two songs are are goodbye as far as I'm concerned uh, on this album and the most beautiful of them the heaviest one I I can't see really any song ever following isn't it a pity even though I did follow it up with one uh -huh. um, but uh, you know we've we've spoken about how beautiful the song is before to me the only way to come back from that and what ends up being my fourteenth and final song is a song. That is both, it kind of takes the edge off of the heaviness of Isn't It a Pity, but uh, kind of brings the picture full circle, which is a song Paul wrote when he was 14, I think, called Suicide. Oh my God, seriously? Yeah. You're ending the, the final track on the final Beatles album is Suicide. Absolutely. Because wow. it's, it's that, that kind of jazz arrangement, but it was written when he was a kid, and... It, they call it suicide. I mean, what are, I mean, ba, 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 wow, you, wow. Isn't that the one that he suggested for Sinatra and Sinatra turned it down? Later on, yeah. But but he had had the song. It's not like he wrote it for Sinatra the way, you know, Lennon claims to have written Nobody Loves You When You're Down and Out for Sinatra. Um, yeah. I'm not sure how much I believe either story. Uh, but I, th I think it's just the idea that it's after this heavy, heavy, isn't it a pity, this kind of light-hearted McCartney track about a heavy thing. And and to me, it was suicide. The the band, the greatest band of all time died of self-inflicted wounds. I mean, that's suicide to me. So that's why I would have chosen it as my closer. It was always going to be the closer 
for me when doing this exercise. If when she tries to run away and he calls her back, she gone. If there's a next time, he's okay cause she's under both his thumbs. She limp along to his side, singing a song of ruin. I hide bad, he's just nothing doing. I call it suicide. When she tries to run away and he calls her back, she comes. Oh. If there's a next time, she's okay, cause she's on the boat. She'll limp along to his side, singing a song of ruin. I bet he says nothing doing. I, I, I. I call it suicide. In my case, as I mentioned earlier, I was considering Isn't It a Pity as the closer. And then I thought, well, no, there's one more left. And what one of my all-time favourite post-Beatles tracks that has fantastic Spectre production... It's a beetle with the wall of sound in stereo. But what would it have been like if we added to that, you know, the Beatles? Maybe it wouldn't have been the wall of sound with George Martin producing. But what would it have been like to have the Beatles performing What Is Life? Yeah, you know, uh, it is also one of my absolute favorite post-Beatles tracks right in the top five. Um, I left it off for the reasons that I thought, you know what? Uh, it would be interesting. Uh, I, what would the Beatles have done with it? But this is the one time that I think they got the right guy to produce it. I, I think Spectre did the best job with that. Um, I agree. You know, and and I, I'm not so sure George Martin would have lifted it to the to the incredible level that 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 Spectre did. So uh, that's why I left it off. I, I thought, agree. That's but, such a George yeah. song. I know it was written in the period, but to me, it's just so purely George that. It's it's like My Sweet Lord, you know, just I can't imagine a Beatles version of My Sweet Lord. Yeah, because yeah, because he wrote that during the uh, That's the Way God Planned It sessions for Billy Preston, right, in 69. Yeah. And it's interesting lyrically because it's kind of enigmatic. You know, is it written about a woman? I wouldn't assume it would be Patty at this point. <laughs> but, uh, you know, also is it written about my sweet lord you know is it written about god it's uh, a very powerful song that works on both levels yeah i think it is that's that is the power of the song i tend to think and i think it was may have been when he explained it in i me mind book i think he at least by the time he wrote i me mind he was claiming it was all about god um i like the fact that it can be one or the other and and there's some some beautiful subtle lyrics you know tell me who am i without you by my side that's just kind of i don't know mm. i don't know if any of the other beatles would have come up with something that subtle and you you that that you can't tell is it god or is it a girl you know that's yeah. i love it you know that's it's a really really amazing track and 
And uh, yeah, I left it off only because I just can't imagine a Beatles version of it. I have to say, Paul was on fire in 68 and 69. Well, he was throughout the Beatles years, really. But 68 and 69, he was just fantastic. I mean, unsurpassable. And what comes out for me here is, barring the possibility that he would have raised his game for another Beatles album, which is very possible, is that, you know, George had just a ton of really strong material. John was going to get into some more strong material. But Paul, it's kind of thin on the ground at this point. And no signs of anything else, uh, really, for me. is I didn't have much to play with in terms of Paul for this album. It, uh, as I said earlier... I get the feeling he was sort of exhausted, sort of burnt out without him maybe even knowing it. Which is understandable because, my God, the effort leading up to this was just gargantuan. Yeah, and I think as he split away from John, uh, you know, or maybe maybe split away is wrong. Maybe what it was is he was kind of frozen out by John, that that heavy level of competition started to change. I don't think it went away ever, but I think... It w- they had a competition and a collaboration which they really didn't have anymore. The competition level mm. now changed, and it wasn't competition for a team effort. It was competition for solo efforts. And I think both <laughs> both sets of work suffered where they could have used the other one a little bit. Um, so I think you're seeing a little bit of that because Paul's really out in the wilderness for a while after Ram. I mean... Um, yeah. You know, all you have to see is, is that great moment on the Dick Cavett show where you've seen that where George shows up and he goes, I don't know what Paul's on yeah. about. And, you know, he goes, you might not like John, but at least he's saying something. And then Cavett's like, well, what do you mean? And he goes, oh, bit bop, bit bop, baby. <laughs> Which I like George's <laughs> version of bit bop better than Paul's. That's how that's how desperate it got. So, I mean, there's, there's yeah, some moments. Really. Well, well, the competition for both John and Paul on this album would have actually been coming from George. Oh, George. I don't even think there was any. I think, I think quite honestly, with the possible exception of one or two songs, you know, my, Maybe I'm Amazed, I still think is a fantastic song. And to a lesser degree, Look at Me. But after that, there's, there's no competition. George is, George is the strong guy on the album, you know. Um, so that begs a question. With George as obviously the strongest songwriter on this, what would they have called the album, do you think? And did they always do the names sort of as a, a group decision, or what would the title have been? Well, would it have taken its title from one of the tracks on the album? That's always a possibility. Like All Things Must Pass. I mean, that would certainly suit the theme of your album, right? The one that you've yes, compiled. Yes, I would have. I, I, I think I would have. Would they have revisited Everest that they nearly used? Uh, mm. But, but I, the only reason I didn't immediately jump out, I mean, certainly All Things Must Pass is what I would have called it. In my case, uh, it would be either All Things Must Pass or another George one, What Is Life? Yeah, What Is Life is probably the more optimistic which would fit the theme, I think, yes. of, of yours. In other words, an open-ended thing. I mean, all things must pass. Let's face it, it's, it, it does fit my theme a lot better. One, two, one, two, three, four.
The Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow. This week is the motherfuckers. Followed by Engelbert Humperdinck. If why didn't she try to run away and he calls her back? She comes. Stand up, Daisy. George Martin.